two or three things by way of preliminary. I am thankful, Matthew Ward, that God spared your life. So that I could just bask in those several songs tonight. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Um, Second, tomorrow night, I won't be here, but if I had to choose the top three people in the universe that I would want to hear preach, one of them would be Eric Alexander. You will not want to miss that man's voice and heart and insight into the global purposes of God. I was on the phone with him to Scotland because he wanted to know what I was going to say so he wouldn't say the same thing. And so we talked it over, and so he will be supplementing and advancing well anything I've been pleased to say. So uh, be as nice to him as you have been to me, please. You've been very gracious, and I thank you for attending to my words. And then just to underline what Ray said, I really don't want to take any of those tapes home. So uh, please uh, get rid of them for us. They are free. Find them. If you see tapes stacked up out there, that's ours probably. Let's pray. Now, Lord, in just a few minutes... Ray will stand at this microphone and call to the front those whom you have decisively touched recently or in the past and are stirring to cross a culture with the gospel in missions. And so I pray that tonight you would move and that you would decisively do a calling work. You would make plain what Colossians 1.24 means for the lives of everybody in this room. Come and help me. Guard me from Satan. Guard me from fear. Guard me from pride. Guard me from imbalance and lack of love and anything unbiblical. And grant that those in this room right now would be touched by the Holy Spirit from on high and would know themselves worked on by Almighty God. Let us not simply have a human transaction here, Lord. Let us have a divine transaction, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my heroes is Richard Vermbrandt, a Romanian pastor, old man now, founded the ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. And uh, he wrote a book, wrote a lot of books, and in one of them he tells the story of a Cistercian monk who was interviewed by an Italian television station, And 
was asked about the habit of the Cistercians to live a life of total silence and seclusion. And the question was asked, what if it proves that Christianity isn't true in the end? How would you feel about having spent a life in utter silence and seclusion, the monks in your order? And this is what he said. Holiness, silence, and sacrifice are beautiful in themselves, even without the promise of reward. I still will have used my life well. I wonder what you think about that response. Be careful. Because the Apostle Paul said the exact opposite. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. Something's wrong here in this response. Why did Paul not agree with this monk? Why didn't Paul say, even if Christ is not raised from the dead, and there's no God, and there's no reward, a life of love and labor and sacrifice is a good life, and I will have spent my life well. Don't have anything to lose in the end because there's no heaven, there's no hell, It seems, the reason this is such a striking contrast to me is because it seems like in America today, many Christians do commend Christ precisely because it will give a life which will have been a good life even if there's no resurrection from the dead. Hmm. So... Was Paul the only one who should say, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, and thus I will not be raised from the dead, and there will be no everlasting recompense for all my life here, then I am to be pitied for the life that I live, not commended for it. Don't we talk about the psychological benefits and the relational benefits and the love and the joy and the reconciliation and the peace and the comforts and the securities and the fruits of the Holy Spirit and uh, you'll have a family of believers who will care for you and the Lord will reward you with many good things here. Seems like there's a lot of that talk in commending Christianity to people. So what's wrong with Paul? Was he not living the abundant life? Why would he say if there's no resurrection, we are of all men most to be pitied? The answer is that for Paul, the Christian life was a life of freely chosen suffering. 
and high-level risk-taking almost continually. Oh, he knew joy. He was the apostle of joy. But it was a joy in hope. He said in Romans 5.3, you remember, rejoice in tribulation, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience approvedness, and approvedness is hope. And if there's no hope, that tribulation was only to be pitied, not to, not to be praised. That would have been a folly for me to risk that tribulation if there's no hope. The joy we experience now in tribulation is the joy that streams to us from a hope beyond so that it's worth taking the risks and sometimes suffering the suffering. And if there is no resurrection and there is no hope beyond, then let us avoid risk at all costs because we have nothing but this life and the only payoff we will get now is what we get now. And so minimize your risk, maximize your earthly comforts, get as many securities as you can and sell Jesus. And he won't be the Jesus of the Apostle Paul. There is a better way to maximize your earthly pleasures than Christianity. So if you're in it for the immediate payoff of earthly pleasures, you either are in the wrong thing or you're in a distortion. The better way Paul talked about in verse 32, he said, if there's no resurrection, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, when he said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, he didn't mean let's all become gluttons and drunks. Because Paul knew as well as you do that gluttons and drunks are as pitiable as Christians, with or without a resurrection. What he meant when he said, If there's no resurrection, let's eat and drink is, let's be normal. Let's have enough food. Let's have enough to drink. Let's make sure the refrigerator's stocked and and, uh, that we have good running water and that it's clean and won't make us diseased. and, And let's just be normal and maximize what this world has to give and lengthen your life out by exercising a good amount and and uh, getting the right amount of sleep and eating the right balanced diet, and then you will have lived well and you should not be pitied, and if there's no heaven and no hell, uh, you've made a good choice. So he wasn't commending, let's all become gluttons and drunks. He just said, let's be ordinary American, middle-class, upstanding, law-abiding, healthy citizens if there's no heaven and there's no hell. But if there is a heaven to be enjoyed forever and a hell from which to escape and to escape others, help others escape, then probably you should choose a life that would be pitied if those didn't exist. Hmm. That's sort of shocking, isn't it? Shocks me. 
causes me to wake up in the morning and rethink my life. Minimize your risk. Minimize your suffering. Maximize your earthly comforts and your securities. Paul said in that chapter, verse 29 to 31, If the dead are not raised, why am I in peril every hour? I protest, brothers, by my exultation in you I that I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Paul made choices that were viewed as dying every day. I make death choices every day. I, I go on rivers. I go on boats. I go on paths at night. I go into cities. I go into mobs. I go into situations that are always at my life is at risk. I wouldn't make any of these choices if I didn't believe in the resurrection. I am a fool if there's no resurrection. The Christian life is a pitiable life if there is no resurrection from the dead. So, why does Paul do that? Why does he make these choices? Now, one of the reasons is the verse that I want to talk to you about tonight. I don't know if you can see a Bible in the darkness out there. But I'm going to take you to Colossians 1.24 and just look at one verse with you tonight and try to make it plain. If you get this verse plain in your life, I think you will have a structure for a strategy of world evangelization that is different from most strategies you're familiar with. And it's one that's right at the center of Paul's life. It was right at the center of the life of Jesus you just saw hung on the cross. Jesus embraced this entirely and then passed it on to us. So let me read Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, Christ's body, which is his church, in filling up that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I'll read it again. Listen carefully. Now I rejoice in my sufferings and in my flesh, my hands, my arms, my legs, my tongue, my eyes, my face, in my flesh, where I bear the marks of Jesus, where I die daily, in my flesh I do my share in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's an amazing verse. For the sake of the church, for the sake of the ingathering of the bride of Christ from all the peoples, from Spain and from Asia and from Syria and from Greece and from Rome, for the sake of gathering the church in and building the church up at whatever cost, in my flesh I suffer in order for the sake of Christ to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of the Christ. 
hung on the cross. That's the way the gospel spreads and the church is built through my sufferings for the church. Now, the main question here is, what in the world does he mean by filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus? That's heresy. Almost. Well, let's make sure we say what it does not mean. And we know it does not mean this this from what else he says elsewhere. It does not mean filling up any lack of worth or value or atoning significance in the sufferings of Jesus. As though Jesus did 80% of what had to be do had to do to forgive your sins and Paul now will do the last 20% or maybe you will. That's not what he means. The sufferings of Jesus are complete. If this film had been shown on to the end, we would have, we would have heard Jesus say, it is finished. That colossal, global, universal statement about the work of the cross was true and the sufferings of Jesus were enough to cover the sins of all the people in all the world who would believe on him. Nothing can be added to them. Well, what then did Paul mean when he said, in my body, in my sufferings, I complete or fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus. Now, let me commend an interpretation to you, show you where I get it, and then draw out its implications for missions. Here's what I think he means. I think he means that what's missing in the sufferings of Jesus are not any worth, any value, any atoning sufficiency, but rather what's missing in the sufferings of Jesus is a personal presentation of those sufferings to those for whom he died. Jesus died not only to bear the sin of the world, but to have his sufferings presented to the world as that which would win the world to belief in his sufferings. And what Paul means in saying, I complete it in that sense, I extend those sufferings as a personal presentation to those for whom he died, what he means is, I do that in my suffering. In my suffering, I extend the sufferings of Jesus in my body as his representative to those for whom he died, that they might taste and see his love in me and have a reflection of the love of Christ in person, in my body, suffering on his behalf for them. That's what I think he means. In other words, I believe a central strategy for completing the Great Commission is the suffering of missionaries. 
And no great commission will be complete without missionary suffering. Missionaries will suffer until Jesus gets back. And all those who want to extend the afflictions of Jesus to anybody will suffer in some measure and embody the very love, sacrificial love, that Jesus embodied on the cross. Now, where do I get that interpretation? Why do I believe that is the case? I get it because of the way the language of completing what is lacking is used in parallel texts in the Apostle Paul. So you could do this word study yourself. You could take the word I complete and find that unusual word fill up. It's not a, it's not a very common word in the Greek and the word uh, what is lacking. That's also not very common. And you enter both of them into your computer and find where they're both used together like they are here. There's only a couple or three places. And the most clear example of the parallel is in Philippians chapter two. Let me give you the situation. There's a man named Epaphroditus in the church in Philippi. And they had gathered together a love offering for Paul. Now, Paul's in Rome and they're in Philippi. I don't know how far it is, hundreds of miles from from the northern Greece there over to Rome. And they're going to send Epaphroditus with this money and perhaps some clothing and perhaps some dried goods. I don't know, whatever they send, because they love him and they want to support him. They send Epaphroditus with this. Now, Epaphroditus almost dies in the process. He risks his life to get it there. And when he gets there, Paul is deeply moved that Epaphroditus would extend, so you begin to see the analogy, the love offering that was taken and off the sacrifices were made in Philippi. Give, 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 give. But they're incomplete until they arrive personally presented to those for whom they were given. And Epaphroditus is the mediating agent, the missionary type person here. And he's risking his life. There's some suffering going on here. Paul talks about in the second chapter of Philippians. Okay, so let's read what Paul says about this ministry that Epaphroditus has in getting the love and sacrifice of the Philippians to Rome and into the hands of the Apostle Paul. Verse 30, chapter 2. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete, same Greek Expression, what is lacking, same Greek expression, in your service to me. So that really tipped me off. You got the exact same phraseology. You have a situation of sacrifice and love over here, a needy person, Paul, over here, a mediating agent here, suffering in, in the flesh, in the process, and it is called filling up what is lacking in that gift of love. So I went to the commentaries, because I hadn't looked at the commentaries yet, to see if they saw what I saw. And I'll read you Marvin Vincent's paragraph from a hundred years ago. This is what he wrote about this Philippian context. The gift to Paul was a gift of the church as a body. It was a sacrificial offering of love. What was lacking 
was the church's presentation of this offering in person, this was impossible. And Paul represents Epaphroditus as supplying this lack by his affectionate and zealous ministry, end quote. Or he could add very specifically, by his suffering in his body, in his flesh, to complete what is lacking in the love and the ministry of the Philippians, who wanted to touch Paul with their sacrifice, like Jesus wants to touch the nations with his sacrifice, but didn't do it personally. He was located in space, in time, in 30 AD, on a hill on Golgotha. He died, he rose, he went back to heaven. He's got one physical agent with which to touch the world. You. In your body. And he means to do it through sickness and health, through persecution, as well as measures of success. To fill up what is lacking. Now, how Did Paul say he was to fill up what is lacking? How was he to extend the sufferings of Christ to to Spain, say? Or to the villages around Rome where he would want it to go? How was he going to do it? He said that he was going to do it through his suffering. I rejoice in my sufferings. We're still in verse 24 of Colossians 1. I rejoice in my sufferings, for in my flesh I complete what is lacking. It is in his sufferings that he extends the sufferings of Christ to those for whom Christ died. From which I infer this. It is Christ's design, since he does nothing by accident. He didn't die on the cross and then say, oh, I forgot. I'm supposed to reach the nations, and now I've died and gone back to heaven. Nothing takes him off guard like that. This whole thing is, is planned out by God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit. They know how they're going to reach the world. He dies as a man in history. He goes back to heaven, he pours out his spirit, he calls people to himself, and then he appoints human beings called the bride of Christ, his body in the world, and he commissions them to finish his sufferings. This is so radical. Did it ever strike you as odd that Jesus would say, whoever would be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me. Whoever, not a few, not just missionaries, whoever would be a Christian must take up his cross. Well, we just saw what a horrible thing that is. This is not take up uh, some disease or take up some hard relationship or this is an instrument of torture. It's horrible. That was very modest what they had Jesus do in screaming right there. That was very modest. Ah! That's all they said. That was modest, believe me. I think he screamed his lungs out for hours. 
It's impossible as a human being not to scream when those nerves right there are pierced with a a stake. This is an instrument of torture. Whoever would come after me must take up his cross and follow me. For he who would save his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. Which is why he says in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. This is a strange man. It's a very strange man. Christians are very strange people. They are miraculous people. Their lifestyles are are risk-taking, and yet when they take risks and certain hard things happen to them, they don't murmur, they don't grumble, they trust the sovereign wisdom and goodness and mercy of God, though they can't always understand it, they don't get it, why these two little kids died in the mission field. Visited a missionary family in in, uh, Uganda, and... And they were so warm and hospitable and loving and uh, had been there, I think, 10 years, planted two or three churches. And as we were leaving, my guide, Tom Varno, who was also a missionary there, uh, was backing up and he, he paused in his Land Rover and he looked out to the mom and he said, all clear? He said, yeah. I thought that was a really interesting little interchange. Of course it was clear. There's no, nobody within a miles. And he backed up and we hit. I said, is there anything to that? And he said, 18 months ago, they backed over their 18-month-old and killed him. And they never went home. They buried him. How do you survive if you kill your own kid? Yeah, that's demonic. I agree with that. Satan had a hand in that. But God didn't lose control. You can't, you gotta, you gotta throw God away if he can't, if he can't say, excuse me, there's a kid behind your car. If he can't stop the car, you know he can. You know he can. You gotta come to terms with those horrible things. And there are worse things than that. They're going to happen. They've happened to you. They're going to happen again. And the world is watching. Will you love me through that? Will you, Or will you just be like everybody else in the world and shake your fist in God's face and murmur and complain and put him in the dock and blame him and be like everybody else? Or will you show me another way? Will you show me that Jesus came into the world to make you radically different? So this word joy here is very strange. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And the for your sake means I am going to, in Christ's name, take the sufferings of Christ on my body. I will take up his cross like he called me to do. I will take the risks it takes to get to the hardest peoples of the world. I will reach there. I will pay the price of malaria. I will pay the price of rejection. I will pay the price of prison. I will pay the price of 
loneliness. I will pay the price of depression. I will pay the price of hard education and distance from my kids. I will pay whatever it takes to be used of God to extend the love of Jesus to the people for whom he died. Because that's the design of Colossians 1.24 to get it done. And all of history bears it out. No missionaries ever had an easy life. The price is very high, and suffering is no accident. It is God's strategy for reaching the nations. Well, let me close with a story. And let me give you a heads up here, because I'll I'll read the story, I'll make a concluding comment, and then I'll pray, and then we're going to sing a great, a great song. I asked Ray, if we could sing this one that we're going to sing, because it just captures tonight's spirit so well. It's kind of the signature song at our church. It is well, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way. Oh, everybody wants that. Next line. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. I want to hear you sing that with all your heart tonight. I want to hear Christians mean it tonight in just a minute. But the heads up I want to give you is this. When that song is over, Ray's going to come here and he's going to ask some a certain group of people to come to the front. And I don't want to take you off guard. There's no manipulation. There's no fancy maneuvering. I have been praying, Ray's been praying, you are praying that in this room, God is calling some people. Some he's already called, some he's calling in the last several nights during the days at the seminars. And you sense a a remarkable new tug upon your life to seriously consider taking in hand the glorious gospel of the sufferings of Jesus and taking whatever it risks to get them across a culture in this country or across a culture in another country to a people group that don't have them yet. And we want to pray for you and and uh, that's what's going to happen. So here's my closing story. I was at Trinity Seminary in Deerfield, Illinois, a few years ago, working on that book on missions, and I heard that J. Oswald Sanders, a grand old mission statesman who was 89 years old then and is now with Jesus, was speaking in chapel, and I wanted to sneak in and hear him, and I did. And he spoke at 89. Oh, I hope I can still talk at 89, other than just babble. Um, and he, he said in passing, this is just an incidental part of the story, that he had written a book a year since he was 70. <laughs> I thought, what a way to spend your life after 70. Write a book a year. That's 18, 19 books between 70 and 89. Oh. So all you retired folks, 70 years old, write a book. Might be costly. That's all right. Pretty much the only people that have anything to say are people who've lived 70 years, I think. The rest of us write too early. Here's the story he told. 
It was an indigenous missionary. I'll paraphrase it. I've got it written out here as best I remembered it when I got home and wrote it down. There was an indigenous missionary that he knew personally. So he's telling this story firsthand. You're getting it secondhand. Um, in India, who was converted and was going to take the gospel simply as he understood it from village to village where there was no gospel witness and tell the story. He trekked all day up a mountain, was very tired, debated whether to wait until the next day after he'd been rested. It was evening coming on, and he said, no, I think I'll, in my weariness, just go in because here's the end of the day. People are gathering to market, and I will get their attention and just give them a brief overview of the gospel and ask them to listen to me maybe another day. And so he gets their attention, and he he tries his best to summarize the, the good news of Jesus in a brief form, to people who've never heard the story, and they they are scornful of him and basically laugh him out of the, out of the city. And he's discouraged and tired. He decides to lie down under a tree, and he goes to sleep. And dusk comes, and it's almost night, and suddenly he wakes up, and he's surrounded by by people looking down on him, and he's scared to death for his life. And... The big man of the village is there, and he says, um, we came out to see you after we had run you out of town, and we just have seen your blistered feet, and we would have decided that we would like for you to tell us this story again, because if you thought the story valuable enough and us valuable enough to Bring it at the cost of blistering your feet like that. We'd like to hear it. You must be a holy man. Now, I think there's a little snapshot of Colossians 1.24. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And you can imagine that man's heart leaping at that point. Wouldn't he be happy at that point? Wouldn't God give him a gift of joy at that point? I'm so thankful you didn't kill me yet and that, and that you're willing to hear me and watch a few blisters on my feet if I get to tell you the gospel because you're asking me to hear it. And that is owing to what he paid in his body by trekking all day up the mountain in bare feet. So a little teeny glimpse, just a little glimpse. And and there are things in your life like this. I'm not saying everybody is going to be a martyr for this text to come true. There are all kinds of prices to be paid. There are all kinds of discernments of unbelievers that you are willing to love them at some cost to yourself. But it is a strategy that God has ordained. And as Ray calls you tonight to consider the call of God on this group to cross cultures, to reach unreached peoples, one of the strategies, not the only one, but one of the strategies that will be involved in all of your lives is suffering. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you as though you were suffering something unusual, First Peter said. It isn't unusual. It is appointed of God for the loving of the people, for the extension of the sufferings of Jesus.
to those for whom he died. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in my pastoral ministry, there's not a lot of suffering, but some. And I don't doubt that there will be more, perhaps a lot more. And perhaps if I were more bold and more risk-taking and more courageous, there would be more. So help me to live out this Colossians 1.24 strategy of reaching the unreached peoples like the Somalis in Minneapolis. 30,000 Somalis within walking distance of my church. All of them Muslim, maybe three believers. Help me and my church to do whatever it takes to cross that culture. And then, Lord, to reach the nations everywhere. And now, Lord, as we sing and then as we respond, would you move, would you work in this group and call and strengthen and purify and embolden and empower and rejoice this people, I ask through Christ. Amen.